don't know, there's something about learning about the, the festivals that's really, really exciting. I, I think it's because it's, of all the things in Scripture, they so plainly point to Messiah, and they're so plainly fulfilled by Messiah, that it's really exciting. You know, because we, we tend to think of holidays as things that point to something in the past. You know, like there's an event, and it's a great event, so we're going to commemorate the event with a yearly celebration. Like, that's the normal holiday spirit. You know, something happened, we're going to celebrate. And that's the way it is even with the holidays in the scriptures. But all of a sudden, Yeshua comes along, and the paradigm is shifted. It just changes drastically where the holidays that are mentioned in the Bible no longer are only things that talk about something that happened in the past and commemorating something that happened in the past, all of a sudden Messiah comes along and all of a sudden these things point to specific things that he did and will do again. And, and that's really exciting. It just, it's a complete paradigm shift when it comes to how people view holidays. Okay? So it's always very cool. There's, there's a scripture in Hosea. It's Hosea 6, 3 uh, that it's, I enjoy. Um, it says, He shall come to us as the rain, as the latter and former rain unto the earth. So that's Hosea 6, 3. And um, the references to the latter rain and the former rain are references to the spring, where you have the former rains, and the autumn, where you have the latter rains, where you also have the spring festivals, and you have the autumn festivals. Okay, so just in that one verse, Hosea 6.3, he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rain unto the earth. It's a hint into his coming is related to the spring festivals, and the autumn festivals. Okay? Um, just a quick intro into these holidays. Um, the Hebrew word for them is Moedim. Uh, so the word for Moedim, right, is not translated as holiday. Right? Um, we often think of holidays, biblical holidays, Jewish holidays, whatever you want to call it, the holidays in the Torah. But the word Moedim actually means appointment, appointments, which is a different flavor than holiday, because a holiday is a celebration, and I like holiday also, because holiday is an English word comes from holy day, so I like holiday, because it is a holy day, but appointment is really neat, because appointment is kept by two people, it's kept by the one who needs to come to the appointment, and it's kept by the one who makes the appointment, who is God. Right? So when we celebrate a holiday or a holy day, one of the moeds, moed, you're actually keeping an appointment. So that's why it's something you do year after year after year. You're keeping an appointment. And doctors may miss appointments. Hairdressers may miss appointments. But Adonai always keeps his appointments. Always, always, always. And we see the keeping of the appointment by God as Yeshua fulfills the festivals. And we're going to go through that. This is going to be a blitz. Again, Rabbi Peter did this in seven weeks. We're doing it in one night. 
one crazy night. Um, so let's see. So let me just quickly go over what the year looks like in Scripture. Um, okay. So right now we're in winter. So it's winter time. There's snow on the ground. Too much snow. And we know even here in America, as the snow starts to dissipate, or even before it dissipates, and I love the time in the season, whenever it is, where all of a sudden you see this little thing come up out of the ground. I always love that. I always enjoy when a little bulb or a little flower or a little, little green something all of a sudden pokes up. And it's this, this glorious, triumphant call that spring is here. Okay? The way the months and the years work in Scripture is this. They're having the winter just like we're having the winter. Okay? All of a sudden, they see something pop up from the ground. When that happens, the next month is the, is, is the first month of the year. Okay? And the months start... Is everybody familiar with the moon cycles? I'm going to go over it very quickly. So we have um, a new moon which is dark in the sky. And then if we look up one week later, it looks sort of like a capital D. Two weeks later, it's a full moon. Three weeks later, it's like a backwards D. And then four weeks later, it's, it's back to here again, a new moon. Okay? Um, the word for moon is Kodesh, which is also the word for month. Okay? So it's at the new the new moon, which is the beginning of the month, right? So it's winter time. All of a sudden, the crops start coming up from the ground. They see it. Aha! The next time we see the new moon, that is going to be month one in the year, which is always in the springtime. Does that make sense? <clears throat> okay? So it's not done like a calendar like we're used to, where it's 12 months of the year, and every January 1st, it's always 365 days or whatever it is, and it's January 1st, beginning of the year. It's done by sight. First, it's got to be the crops coming up, which in the scriptures is the barley. So the barley comes up, it is witnessed, and then you got to look in the sky for the, for the new moon. And then when that happens, you're, you're, hit, you're hit the first month. It's the, new, it's the first month of the year. Okay? So, and it goes around, it goes around, it goes around. So it's going to be roughly 12 months or so, it might be 13 months, whatever it is, until the next time around, after winter, you see the barley come up. Aha! Then wait for the new moon. There it is, and it's your new month. It's first of the next year. Okay? So that's how it works with the months. Um, within the first month is a couple of holidays. So we're going to start with that. So it's the first month of the year, right? Month one. And we have day one, day two, day three, day four, day five. So we're going to start learning about the festivals. So the spring festivals that happen in the springtime start in month one. Everybody with me? Okay. I never heard anybody say, no, I'm really not with you. Everybody just kind of says, yes, I'm with you. Some months, some years, we not have 12 months. Correct. Correct. It, it, it doesn't matter if it's 20 months. It'll never, it hasn't been. It'll never probably be, you know. But it's done by sight. It's not a matter of how many months per year, like 12 months per year. It's purely a matter of sight. And yes, there will be, other, there'll be years that will be 13 months. I think this year is one of them. Yes. Correct. Adar one, right? Adar one, Adar two. Okay. Beautiful. Um, okay. 
Uh, Passover is the first, first moed, the first holiday. So I'm going to start reading. Um, oh, and by the way, all the holidays, if you want to read just a summary of all the holidays, Leviticus 23 is your, is your scripture. Leviticus 23 lists them all. And we're going to reference that a lot today. All right. So Exodus 12 is when God establishes Passover. This is back in the time of Moses, in the time of the Exodus from Egypt. Okay? Exodus 12. I won't read all of it, but I'll I'll skim through it. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of your months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So that month in springtime is actually like the biblical January. It's the first month of the year. Okay. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, on the 10th of this month, so now all of a sudden the commandments and the dates about what's, what you're supposed to do. So on the 10th of this month, so we have month one, right? So we're in month one. We have a bunch of days. So now we have day 10 of month one, right? I will keep reading. On the 10th of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household, okay? So on the 10th day of the first month, is when, and this happens every year, a lamb is brought into each household. Okay? So, day 10, lamb brought in. Lamb shall be without blemish. You can take it from the sheep of the goats. Sheep or the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel, which is every household here, shall kill it at twilight. So we have now day 14, right, in the evening, which is towards the end of the day. The, the, the day in Scripture is evening to evening, like the sun went down just an hour ago. It's the beginning of the next day. That's how it works in Scripture, and, and in Israel now. It's evening to evening. Okay? So you're going to keep it until evening, which is the end of the 14th day of the month. Right? It's the 14th day of evening, so it's the end of the day, just before the next day, um, you shall kill the lamb. Right? So lamb is killed. Okay? That's when you take the blood, and this is what happened on the first, on the first pass. So you take the blood, you put it on the doorposts, um, they, eat, they eat it at night. Don't leave any of it till morning. It's got to be all done by morning. Um, and then, yeah, it's got to be all done by morning. And the Lord passes over Egypt, and he slays the firstborn. But when he sees the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, he passes over the house and saves that house from that destruction. We all know the story, right? So, but those are the main days that you will see here. Um, it goes on to say, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. 
first day, you shall remove leaven from your homes. There shall be a holy convocation on the first day, a holy convocation on the seventh day. Um, yep. In the first month, on the twenty, on the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For the seven days you shall eat it. So what all that means is the fourteenth day of the month in the evening, you kill the lamb. Okay, that's the event of Passover, and it also starts the day of Passover. So you got 14th in the evening, the 15th through the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th, 21st of that month is unleavened bread. So this is what happens in the first month. Day 10, the lamb is brought into the houses. Day 14 in the evening, the lamb is killed. And then right, right after that, right at that same day, which is... You write that same day, which is the beginning of the, 15th, the beginning of the 15th to the 21st, you have unleavened bread, which is where you are not allowed to eat any leaven. All leaven needs to be removed from Israel. All leaven needs, needs to be removed from the homes. And you need to get to that point of having all the leaven removed before this day. Okay? So, also, you have the lamb brought in here, but also through these days, you will have... Um, I'll write it in here. A cleansing of leaven. Okay? So all throughout, towards this day, everybody in Israel is searching for leaven. Whether it's in their houses, whether they're looking for breadcrumbs under their, uh, under their couch cushions, or whatever it is, look, you know, opening up their refrigerators and looking for a pizza crust or whatever it is. They're looking for leaven products in their homes. And they're doing that up until this event when the lamb is killed. At that point, there is no more leaven in the house anywhere in Israel, and you celebrate for uh, seven days unleavened bread. And the first day is a day of no work. And the last day is no work. Okay? And when, when the Lord has a period of time, and the first day is a day where you're not supposed to work, and the last day, it's sort of like time markers, that this time period is holy. And there's sort of just markers in time. This day to this day, you mark beginning and the end by not working. Right? So you can devote your day to the Lord. This is what's happening in Israel every year since the exodus from Egypt. Every year, this is what's happening. The Lord says to do this. He says to tell the story. In fact, um, is everybody familiar with the Passover Seder? Yes. The Passover Seder is biblical because it says in this evening you're supposed to eat the lamb. It also mentions a few other things to eat. Bitter herbs. And there's one other... There's one other food element, biblically, to eat. No, not the garosid. It's the bitter herbs, the lamb, and of course, and unleavened bread. Thank you. That's it. You got it. Bitter herbs, lamb, unleavened bread. And it says, when your children ask, why are you doing this? You tell them the story. 
And that's the whole purpose of why there is a Seder every year. It's essentially to eat the biblical elements and to tell the story. It's to keep those commandments, right? And we have it at Mishkan David. We have a Seder every year. God willing, we'll have one this year as well uh, on the second night of Passover. Okay, first night, we allow everybody to go with their families. Okay, so this is happening year after year after year after year, and it's treated just like a regular, as we said, holiday. It's a commemoration of what happened back then. And year after year, this is happening until the fullness of time, Yeshua changes the paradigm. Okay? How is it fulfilled? John 12. Maybe we can get some readers here. This helps to keep people awake. In six days before the Passover, Yeshua came to Bethlehem, where Lazarus was There he made a supper and Martha's servant. Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table. Okay, we can stop there for a moment. Six days before the Passover, something happened, right? It happened with Lazarus, whatever it was. Six days before the Passover. People that just read the New Testament and don't have an understanding of, of Torah don't really care. Six days before Passover, it's meaningless. Meaningless, okay? Six days before the Passover, we've determined that the, the event of Passover is 14th in the evening and immediately starts the day, the 15th day. So that is the 15th is the first day of unleavened bread. It's also the day of Passover because the day of Passover starts with this event and it goes on for a day, okay? So the 15th is the day of Passover. With me? This happened when, when um, what we just read, what Lou just read in John 12, it says six days before the Passover and something with Lazarus. Six days. So that would make it what day of the month? What day of the first month? The ninth. The ninth. The ninth of the first month, which is named Nisan. Okay? Continue on to verse 12, Lou, and read that. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil. No, no, no. no, verse 12. Okay. The next day, a great, the next day, a great multitude yep. that had come to the feast when they had heard that Yeshua was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, who would be king of Israel. Yep. And so, Go ahead. Yeah. Then Yeshua, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. Yep. Sitting on a donkey's Okay, great. So, in the beginning of this verse, it said six days before Passover, which we all say is the ninth day of the first month. It then goes on to say, after it goes through that story, in verse 12, the next day which is the tenth of the month. The day that lambs are brought into homes. And what happened on that day that we just read? Yeshua, Yeshua enters into Jerusalem. Yeah. Right? And everybody's going, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. That happened precisely on the day 
that lambs in Israel, according to Torah, are brought into, into homes. It's the exact day that Yeshua, the Lamb of God, came into Jerusalem. Okay? And it, th those types of details are so easily missed. So easily missed when the church has, for the most part, cut itself off from the Jewish and the Hebrew roots of their faith. Simple things like that and the connection between what Yeshua is doing as the one who fulfills the Torah, the way he does that, it gets lost, right? And these details I find amazing, right? These little details are amazing. I'm just going to share this one thing. It's another little detail that can get lost. It doesn't have to do with the holidays, the Moedim, but it's something that brings a smile to my face. So I'm going to share about it really, really quickly. There is, I think it is John 20. I, I may have that wrong. Okay, this is after Yeshua is on the cross, he's been in the tomb, and it's now the morning of the first day, or Sunday morning. Mary goes and finds, she finds the tomb empty. She runs and tells the disciples that the tomb is empty. Right? The next thing that John recounts, and I believe it's John 20. Let me just double check that. Okay, great, great. So John 20. Okay, so she ran, she tells Peter, Simon Peter. So it says here, verse 4. And I, this, is, this is, I love this a lot. So verse, um, John 20, verse 4. So they ran together. And the, so this is Peter and John, the disciple that Yeshua loved, right? The writer of the book of John. So they're running towards the tomb. They're sprinting, right? So um, they both ran together, and the other disciple, who is John, outran Peter and came to the tomb first. So they're booking, right? And they're, they're running as fast as they can, and all you would get out of this is John is a faster runner because he gets to the tomb first. So they both ran together. The other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Then he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. So John outruns Peter, gets to the edge of the tomb, stops, and looks in, but did not go in. Okay? Peter came, following him, <sighs> he finally makes it to the tomb, um, goes into the tomb, saw the linen cloths lying there and the, the handkerchief that's been around his head, uh, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together. Then, the other disciple John, came into, who came to the tomb first, went in also. And he saw and believed. Okay, Just a simple little narrative that sounds like it means nothing. Right? They're running together. John gets there first. He stops at the tomb, peeks in. Peter arrives. He goes into the tomb, looks around, sees that no dead body is in there. Then John goes in. What does this mean and why does this happen? And is it just unnecessary information or is the writer just being descriptive? Okay? Well, does it sound familiar about not being next to a dead body? Does that sound familiar in Scripture? It's in, in Leviticus... Uh, I think it's 18 or something. It speaks about the priests, that they are not allowed to defile themselves by being next to a dead body. 
Okay? It's specific to the priests. Right? And even this day, you go to a funeral in, in, in Judaism and somebody who has that lineage, they won't, they won't go a certain distance or whatever it is from a dead body. It's in the Torah. A priest is not allowed to define himself with a dead body. What does it have to do with John? Now, I wish I had these verses written. I believe it's John 18. Uh, verse 13. John 18, 13. I'll start reading. And they led him away to Anas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest. Now it was Caiaphas to advise the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That's John. Now the disciple that was known to the high priest went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. So John went into the courtyard of the high priest, was allowed. Peter did not. Okay? But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out, spoke to her who kept the door, and brought Peter in. So Peter was not allowed to go to a place where John was, and it says that John was known to the high priest. So clearly, John had some sort of relation with the high priests who are not allowed to go near a dead body. So John, he must have been maybe in the lineage, maybe he was next in line or something to become priest. He was an up-and-coming high priest, Kohen, Hagadol perhaps, but he was of that family because it says that he was known by the high priest. He was allowed to where the high priests were, where Peter wasn't, right? So it shows that he had this kind of connection to the high priest, which makes sense. Now we know why he did not go into the tomb. But Peter did, and once it was confirmed that there's no dead body in there, John went in. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay, I think it's really cool because it's a little detail that it's, it's easy for anybody to gloss over. I, I, I love that because it, it, fills in, it fills in everything. Yep. It answers everything. It, it, it does. And it, it, it connects the old with the new. It connects the Torah with the new. It, 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 it completes the story. It, yes. it fills in the puzzle pieces. Um, the one thing, interestingly, that happened different is then, then in the Torah. In the Torah, you kill the lamb on the, on the evening of the 14th, and then you have your Seder. Yeshua had his Seder, the Last Supper, the evening prior. Why? Because he would not survive the killing of the lamb. So it says in one place how I longed to have this Seder with you. So when he had his Seder, it must have been the evening prior. Because he was on the cross at the exact time, at the evening of the 14th of Nisan, when lambs were being slain. And I, I want you to gather this picture. All throughout Israel, lambs are, have been in the house at the exact same day that Yeshua entered Jerusalem triumphantly. At the exact same time. And, and lambs were brought into the house. On this evening, on the 14th of the first month in the evening... Lambs are being slain in every single household at that exact moment, at the exact time of the day, Yeshua, the Lamb of God, is on the cross. At the exact time. Thus fulfilling Passover and changing the paradigm that this, what we've been celebrating, is not just about what happened in the past, but we're experiencing a fulfillment of it right now with the Messiah. Okay? Okay. Um, prior to this event, the children of Israel are cleansing Israel from 
leaven. What does leaven represent in the scripture? Sin. Right? A little leaven. Leaven's the whole lump. Don't, um, don't get caught up with the leaven of the Pharisees. Um, talks about pride, puffiness. It's, it's a representation of sin. Okay? So, and, and all throughout these days, all throughout time, since, since the time of the Exodus, the children of Israel are cleansing their houses from all leaven. Not just the big stuff. The little stuff. I'm telling you, I did it as a kid, just looking with a flashlight for, like, crumbs, you know, under the couches or, or whatever it is. All leaven, the smallest little bits of leaven to the, to the big loaves of bread, whatever it is that you may have in your house, cleansing your toaster ovens, whatever it is. This is what's happening up until this day. And at the time that Yeshua was on the cross, it was at that moment not only are the lambs are killed, but it's at the time when all leaven is removed from Israel. And houses are making proclamations that this house is clean of leaven at the exact time that Yeshua is saying, this house is clean from sin. At the exact time. It's immediately followed by unleavened bread. Seven days of unleavened bread with markers, with the no work day in the beginning, no work day at the end. Seven days of unleavened bread. Unleavened means sinlessness. If leaven is sin, unleavened is sinlessness. Seven is, what is that number? Like, what does it represent normally in, in Scripture? Perfection, right? Rest, perfection. So, seven days of unleavened bread means perfect sinlessness. And that happens precisely at the time that Yeshua was on the cross. Okay? Thus, Yeshua fulfilled unleavened bread. The festival, the feast of unleavened bread. Okay? We spoke last week that the Day of Atonement for Israel is a fall holiday. It's the Day of Atonement. Right? This day, Passover, is their day to slay the lamb and to remove leaven from Israel. And they did both these things. Because once Yeshua left that Seder and he went into the garden, all the leaven in the world came on him at that point. All the leaven. And who did they look for at that time? Yeshua. And where did they bring him? Outside the camp. They fulfilled it absolutely perfectly, according to Torah. By the way, um, communion, I believe, finds its meaning in Passover. Because when Yeshua said, when you do this, do it in remembrance of me. When he said, take this bread, which was matzah, it was the unleavened bread, it was during that Seder, during that, that scriptural meal. When he said, this is my body, eat it. Do it in remembrance. When you do this, do it in remembrance of me. This is my blood. Drink. Do it in remembrance of me. He's keeping a Passover Seder. So I believe when it speaks about communion, it is a, it pertains to Passover. So when you do this, when you do what? When you keep Passover. Do it in remembrance of me. So the Passover, so the remembrance is always at Passover. At Passover. Ain't nothing wrong with doing it every day. Ain't nothing wrong with doing it in your church or your synagogue. 
no problem with it. I, but the purpose of what he said is... It doesn't make it any more Correct. 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 What he was talking about was Passover. And that's why it even says in, in verses from Paul, um, 1 Corinthians, Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. Let's celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, with the leaven of malice, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So it, it pertains to Passover. Okay? So Yeshua fulfilled Passover, and he fulfilled unleavened bread. The disciples, I don't think, fully understood exactly what was happening at this point. It may have been a coincidence. I don't know. I mean, they must have heard John the Baptist say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But they didn't know at that time when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That in full context it meant, Behold, the Passover Lamb of God who takes away the leaven of the world. That is the context of where John the Baptist said that. And it's interesting, even though the atonement for Israel is going to be in the fall, right, it's the Day of Atonement, there's still, but you're like, well, shouldn't they have to recognize Yeshua who died for them on Passover? What I find interesting is this. Of all the holidays, of all the Moedim in the scriptures, of all of them, there's only one holiday where you're given a second chance to celebrate it. If you miss it because you're unclean, because of a dead body. And that's Passover. It's the only holiday where you have a second chance. Even in Judaism today, it's called the holiday of second chances. It's the only one, the one where Yeshua fulfilled on the cross as the Lamb of God, is the only holiday where you can celebrate it a second time if you miss it the first time because you're unclean. And I think that's very cool. Adonai is faithful. He's faithful. And his faithfulness is so beyond our ability to keep these things correctly. He has provision for us. Amen. So I said that Leviticus 23 lists all of the holidays, all of the festivals, all of the Moedim. I'm going to continue on. I'm going to go past Passover. I'm going to go past Unleavened Bread. And go to the next one. This is Leviticus 23, verse 9. Passover just finished. Spoke about Unleavened Bread. Leviticus 23, verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. And say to them, When you come into the land which I give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of the harvest to the priest. So we spoke about how the crops are just starting to come down, come out of the ground, right? So a first fruit is grabbed from the ground, it is handed to the priest. And the priest, verse 11, he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. 
the day after the Sabbath, he shall wave it. Okay? So, we have the crops coming up, plucked, hand to the priest, on the day after the Sabbath, he shall wave it. We just got done with Passover. At some point after that, there is a Sabbath, right? At some point, you're going to hit Saturday, the Sabbath. Everyone know what day the Sabbath is? Right, Friday night to Saturday, right? The day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave this. What day is the day of the week after the Sabbath? The first day of the week, or what we call Sunday. So, what it's saying is, in English terms, the Sunday after Passover, this crop that is essentially a resurrected crop, because that's what they are, right? It's just, just coming out of the ground. It's gone through the winter, and all of a sudden, here it comes. The first fruit of this resurrected crop is handed to the priest, and the priest waves it on the Sunday after Passover. Going into Yeshua fulfilled these things, what happened on the Sunday after Passover? His resurrection. So his resurrection also happened precisely according to Torah on the biblical day, the scriptural Torah day of resurrection. Where every year the crop is raised and it is waved as a pronouncement that the crops that the crops that were once dead are now alive. And if the first people, then the rest is whole. That's right. That's right. It even says in one place that Christ is the first fruits. That's where that comes from. That's where that comes from. It's 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 linked to Torah, just like when Paul says he's the Passover Lamb. When he says it's the first fruits, he's linked to this event of the first fruits. Does that make sense? Any questions about that? It is, yeah, please. Um, I, I've heard that, but I'm curious now, hearing how it's actually laid out in Leviticus, yep. why it wouldn't happen before the 10th? I mean, it didn't say the first Sabbath, the second Sabbath, but since there would have to be a Sabbath before Passover in the first month. So it's the first yep. time that God came up, I picked it, and I'm waiting for the first Sunday. Yep. You're waiting for an after Passover. First Passover. Oh, after Passover. After Passover. Passover. Yeah. Passover. Correct. Yes, correct. Yeah, there, there certainly could be Sabbaths on the first day, second day, whatever it is of the month. So does it mean it's always on the 16th? Because that's a Sabbath? A no work Sabbath? Actually, no. And I'll, I'll tell you where there's, a, there's differences in Judaism of when this, when this is. Okay? Um, it says specifically in the scripture, it's the day after the Sabbath. After Passover. Okay? However, there's a camp that thinks that that Sabbath is the Saturday, like the regular weekly Sabbath. There's a camp in Judaism that thinks the Sabbath that's being spoken about is Passover itself. So it's actually the day after Passover. So there are some that believe it's like the day after Passover, which always is the 16th. Always. And there are some that believe just whenever the, Sabbath, whenever the Saturday comes, the day after, whatever the Sunday is, that's the day. Okay? Either way, in, however you want to translate it, in Yeshua's time, it worked out on the Sunday. Because we know that in that time, Passover was the Friday night. We know that. And it even says that they rested on the Sabbath, Sabbath according to their custom. It says that in Luke, after he came down from the cross, 
And it's, so we know that it was a Friday night. We know he was resurrected on a Sunday. So however you translate it, it works out. In conclusion, he died on exactly on Passover. Exactly on Passover when the lambs were being slain. He was on the cross. Exactly the exact time. He was resurrected exactly on the day that the high priest takes the resurrected crops and waves it as a declaration of resurrection that these crops have been resurrected. And that's when Yeshua was resurrected. Thus, Yeshua fulfilled this first day of first fruits. There's other days, um, other names of it. Um, since it's the beginning of a time of counting, we'll talk about that. It's actually called in, in, in Judaism or even in the scripture, it's called the first day of the counting of the Omer. Um, and uh, in Hebrew, it's Sefirat HaOmer. Um, so, what happens then? So, we have Passover, we have this, this uh, resurrection day of the crops, which is on the, on, the, on the day after the Sabbath, okay? Which, in this case, in, in the first century with Yeshua, it was on a Sunday, right? So, then starts um, a, a time of counting for 50 days. So, I'll go back into Scripture, Leviticus 23. So, it speaks about in verse 11 where the priest will wave it. Oh, it's also on this day when we wave the resurrected crop. That is the day when you're allowed to eat the new grain. Okay, so grain is coming up, barley is coming up, all the stuff is coming up, right? You're not allowed to eat it yet. It's considered old. You're not allowed to touch it. You're supposed to be eating from the stuff that you've harvested back in the autumn. You're not allowed to touch the new stuff yet until this resurrection day. Once you do that, you're allowed to eat the new grain. Okay? And so it also speaks about Yeshua and his resurrection and the new covenant and, you know, it's a new season, so the old passes away and God is doing a new thing. Okay? Because that's the day even in Scripture. You're not allowed to... You're only supposed to eat the old until this day of resurrection and then you're allowed to eat the new. Okay? And that is in verse uh, 14. You shall eat neither bread, nor parched grain, nor fresh grain. Until that day, you have brought the offering uh, to your God. That's the day when you, rape, when you wave it. Keep going. On verse 15, Leviticus 23, 15. And you shall count for yourself from this day after the Sabbath. So this is the day that it was, that it was waved, Yeshua's resurrection. Verse 15. You shall count for yourself from the day after the Sabbath from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths. Okay, so that's seven weeks, it's 49 days. Okay, so you count, and that's what they call the counting of the Omer, Sefir of HaOmer. Okay, so it's a counting of 50 days. That one, that holiday, 50 days after this, 50 days after this resurrection day, is called Shavuot. Okay, it's also called, in English many times in the church, Pentecost. The, way, the reason they call it Pentecost is because pent uh, has its root in, in five or fifty, right? So it comes from this commandment, so it's fifty days after Resurrection Day. And I'm not sure, I think in the church, is, is, is Pentecost in the church fifty days after Easter? It is. Okay. Yep. Okay. Okay. But this is a holiday, this Shavuot, right? Feast of weeks. Okay? 
50 days after the resurrection day, the first day where you wave the grain. That is the exact same day of Pentecost that is in the scripture in the book of Acts. It's the exact same day. So we know the story, right? This is when the, the Ruach, the Holy Spirit, is poured out on the believers, right? Pentecost. This happened precisely on this day that the Torah says happens 50 days after. So even that happened on a biblical holiday. Okay? So his death happened on a holiday in Torah. His resurrection happened precisely on the holiday in Torah. And then the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts happened also in a holiday on Torah, which is 50 days after. Um, this is something that I always enjoy to read. Um, this holiday of Shavuot, Feast of Weeks, um, the, in Judaism, it's not explicitly... Oh, this is when the podcast starts to get better. Yeah. It's, um, it's not explicitly said in Scripture, but it is believed in Judaism that this day of Shavuot is the day that the Lord gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. Okay? So we know the story in the book of Acts. As believers, we know the story in the book of Acts. But in Judaism, it equates to the giving of the Ten Commandments on Sinai. And even if we read in Exodus 19, um, the story of the giving of the Ten Commandments, what happened, it says, this is Exodus 19, uh, it came to pass on the third day, in the morning there was thundering and lightning, thick cloud on the mountain, the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people in the camp trembled, um, the Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. Uh, that smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. The whole mountain quaked greatly. And with the blast of the trumpet sounding long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. Okay? So number one, you see like the signs and the wonders, right? So you see even a connection there. But you also see in Sinai, in the, in this, in the, what happened at Sinai is God spoke. And people audibly heard the voice of God from Sinai. Um, in the Jewish tradition, in the, um, in the writings of the rabbis, I'm going to read some of these things of where the Jewish tradition evolved, who do not believe in Yeshua, and do not believe in that the book of Acts means anything. I'm going to read what, what's in some of the Jewish writings. This is from the Jewish Midrash, Exodus Rabbah 5.9. God's voice, as it was uttered, Split into 70 voices, into 70 tongues, so all the nations should understand. In the occasion of the giving of the Torah, the children of Israel not only heard God's voice, but actually saw the sound waves as they emerged from God's mouth. They visualize them as a fiery substance. Each commandment that left God's mouth traveled the entire camp and then to each Jew individually, asking him, do you accept upon yourself this commandment with all its laws pertaining to it? And every Jew answered yes. And finally the fiery substance engraved itself on the tablet. 
So that's what they believe. So, this tradition is an ancient tradition. This thought process is an ancient thought process that God's voice split into fiery tongues on Sinai. This was in the mind of Jewish people. And here we have in the book of Acts tongues of fire coming down and landing on the believers. Is that cool? I think that's pretty cool. There is, however, a shift. And this is critically important when it comes to Shavuot and when it comes to Pentecost. Because Yeshua fulfills all of the Torah. He fulfills all of it. I did not come to put an end to it. I've come to fulfill it. Okay? So he fulfilled it. And we see specifically how he is the Passover lamb. And he is the one who is on the cross precisely at the time that the lambs were slain. We see he is the one who was resurrected precisely on the first day of the counting, <coughs> the first of the resurrected crops, the first fruit is waved. We see specifically how Yeshua himself fulfilled these things. Now comes the fulfillment of Shavuot. And it happened clearly at Pentecost, as we just spoke about. But where was Yeshua. He left the scene ten days prior. Yes. He was not, the man Yeshua was not around on earth during the fulfillment of Shavuot. So how did Yeshua fulfill? Fulfill, because Yeshua is the one who fulfills it all. Nobody fulfills the Torah but Yeshua. How did he fulfill it? Remember, on Sinai, the voice of God was heard. Now, at this Pentecost event, the voice of God came through the people. So that is how Yeshua fulfills Shavuot at Pentecost. He speaks not the one who is on the cross any longer, but speaking in spirit through the people. And that is another paradigm shift that is critical to understand that the dynamic shift that went from the one to the many. When Yeshua, who died, it says that the one seed, if it, remains, if it doesn't die, it remains a seed. But when it dies, it produces much and that is what happened on, at Pentecost. Yeshua multiplied himself and spoke the words of God through the people. There is um, a scripture in the Torah about this holiday. And it speaks about um, what happened at Sinai. And it says in Deuteronomy 19 that when... God came down on the mountain, and the mountain shook, and all these things were happening. The children of God who were around the mountain were frightened. Do we know the story? It's, and they said, let me not again hear the voice of the Lord, and nor let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. They were frightened to death, literally to death about what they were seeing on the mountain. They're like, oh my God, this is way, this is too much for me, just don't... Get this away from me. I cannot deal with this. This is going to kill me. And they said, um, Moses, you 
speak to God on our behalf. We can't deal with all this fire and, and, and craziness and, and trumpet sounds. You, Moses, go up and speak to God, and we'll listen to you. Okay? And you'd think that God would be upset by that, because what, they don't want to hear my voice, right? He comes down this fire, and they're like, oh, no, we don't want to see this, we don't want to hear this, right? Like, you think God would be upset. But what God said is to Moses, um, what they have spoken is good. This happened on Shavuot. What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet, like you, from amongst their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them, speak to them all that I command. So it's on this day of Shavuot, on the day of Pentecost, that God said, what they ask is good, I will raise up a prophet, and he will speak my words. That can only be fulfilled by Yeshua. But where was Yeshua? He was already in heaven at the right hand of the Father. That was fulfilled by you. By the people of God. By God's people. You are the prophet. You are the prophet. You are the prophet. You are the prophet. That is spoken about here. It has to be. Because in the fulfillment, it's on this day when he said, I'll raise up a prophet, and we see clearly it is the fulfillment in Acts 2, in this Pentecost event. Who is the prophet of that time? It's the people. Clearly, it's the people. Yeshua did not come down from heaven and stand on, in the upper room and fulfill it. The, 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 this was clearly fulfilled by the people speaking God's words. God said, I will raise up a prophet. He said it on that day. Who are the ones that spoke prophetically? The people. But who fulfills the Torah? Yeshua. It's a shift. It's a paradigm shift. When the one is, is transformed into the many. So his glory can be filled, can fill the entire earth. So it's always Yeshua. It's always, always, always Yeshua. But manifesting now through the people. And that is a shift. In the latter days, it won't be one, it will be the many. Yes. Amen. Amen. Are we, you with, are you with me? Everything good? Any questions? Comments? So, that is the fulfillment of all the spring festivals. So if you look on the, in the year, you have month one, where you have the Passover, you have the resurrection, which is the uh, waving, the counting of you know, counting and the waving of the first fruits, and then 50 days after you have Shavuot, which by the way you're waving two loaves of bread. So on the resurrection day, on the first fruits day, it's one, and then all of a sudden in Shavuot, 50 days after, it's loaves of bread, two loaves of bread actually, with leaven. So out of my nose that we're sinful people. Like if that represent, represents us, he knows that we're we're combination, you know, we're we're, sin, we're still sinful people. But that's that's the fulfillment. It goes from the one unleavened sheep to two loaves of bread. Okay. So we have the spring festivals. We have the Passover and, and, the, and the and the first fruits and the Shavuot. Then you have the long hot summer with no festivals at all. And that's the kind. That's the time we're in right now. We're just crops are coming up, crops are getting harvested, people are growing, people are getting harvested. You know, it's people are getting saved. It's just a, a long, hot summer, and there's nothing. Then comes the festivals in the autumn. 
Okay? Disclaimer time. The autumn festivals have yet to be fulfilled. And because they have yet to be fulfilled, I cannot speak about them 100% accurately. I have to be completely honest. It's easier to speak about the festivals that have been fulfilled because I have the benefit of retrospect and seeing what Yeshua did. So anything that I share as far as the autumn festivals, which have yet to be fulfilled by Yeshua, it is speculation. Okay? I will do my best to be biblical about it. But since it has not yet happened, there's still mystery around it. So I need to be clear about it. I do not know how the book of Revelation is going to transpire fully. I do not claim to know. All right? And all the little details about the fall holidays, I don't know how it's going to be fulfilled. But we're going to start to take a look at the fall holidays. And we're going to continue on with the same chapter of Leviticus 23. Here we go. Verse 23. So Leviticus 23, 23. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, so now all of a sudden we're in the seventh month. Okay, that's what I'm saying. You have the long summer, and now all of a sudden you're in the seventh month, which is normally around September time. Because if the first month is in the spring, around March-ish, April-ish, somewhere around that time, seventh month is normally around September, October. Okay? So it's in the autumn. In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. That's all it says. Okay? That's so quick I could read it again and not waste a lot of time. In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. That's it. Okay? Not a lot of pomp and circumstance. Not a lot of various things you got to do. Not a lot of sacrifice. Not a lot of waiting this or doing this or killing this or shouting this or whatever it is. You blow the trumpets. Okay? It is essentially a call. Like a, a call saying, attention, we have begun the fall festivals. We've entered into a new season. This fall season has begun. It's the first day of the seventh month. How is this going to be fulfilled? I'll share with you what I did. Because it's still in the realm of mystery. It hasn't been fulfilled yet. We're still in the long, hot summer waiting for this event. But what did I do? I looked in the scripture, in all of the New Testament, for times that the word trumpet is used. To see if there is a hint of what could possibly be coming that pertains to trumpets. That's, a, I think, a pretty fair thing to do, right? So, here's what I found. Now, there's a couple of superfluous ones, a couple of ones that I don't think have anything to do with the fulfillment of this as, as, as a festival, as a holiday. You know, Yeshua said, you know, when you give to the poor, don't herald your arrival with the sounding of trumpets, you know, kind of do things in private. I don't think that has anything to do with this. Okay, so there's a couple of ones that are kind of superfluous. Maybe it does, I don't know. But here's a couple, and I want you to, if you're writing, this, these are things you can write down. Matthew 24, verse 31. 
And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. 1 Corinthians 15.52 In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. 1 Thessalonians 4 15 through 17. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of of God, and the dead in Messiah will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. And the last verses I want to mention is Revelations 8 through 11, which speak about this time that's been called the time of tribulation. And there are seven trumpets. Uh, it says in Reve Revelation 8, verse 2, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Now, why does this have to do with um, tribulation? I'll just summarize what each trumpet is. One, trumpet one, hail and fire. Trumpet two, fire thrown into the sea. Trumpet three, a star fell from heaven. Trumpet four, a third of the sun, moon, and stars were struck. Trumpet five, bottomless pit opened and locusts are released. Trumpet six, army, an army from the east comes. And trumpet seven, which is a little bit of a different twist, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Messiah. And he will reign forever. Okay? So, it sounds like trumpets do have something to do with something that's going to happen at the end. Right? I will share this. The verses that I read are normally translated as rapture. Okay? Every time, every verse I read here about the trumpets, except for the seven trumpets in Revelation with the tribulation, the other ones I read all pertain to what is usually translated as the rapture. Okay? For those who believe in the rapture, people either believe in pre-tribulation rapture or post-tribulation rapture. Okay? I will share with you right now, there's no rapture. It does not bear biblical proof. And I will show you, biblically, 
that the rapture is a mistranslation of these things. Okay? And we're going to go through these one at a time, very simply. And hopefully it will show you it's pretty obvious that it's a mistranslation. That the Lord is not looking to take us out. He's looking to come to us. Okay? So we started with Matthew 24, verse 31. Matthew 24, verse 31, is a popular rapture one. And it says, And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn the parable of the fig tree. So let me just read it from here, verse 31 again. He will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. Now the fig tree is an analogy for Israel, who Yeshua cursed earlier on in the Gospels. Learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things, know that it is near at the doors. Surely I say to you, this generation by no means will pass away until these things take place. I believe since the fig tree represents Israel, and it says when you see the fig tree start to bloom, you know these things are near, and this generation will not pass away until all these things happen. I believe that the fig tree blooming again is when Israel became a nation in 1948. Because the fig tree is about Israel, and it was cursed, and it was completely barren, and now it starts to bud again. So this generation, so the generation that has saw the rebirth of Israel, this is my belief, I could be wrong. I reserve the right to be wrong with anything that comes to the future. Okay? But I believe that it is that generation who saw that, who witnessed that, it's that generation that will, that will not pass before all these things happen. Okay? Which means we're close. If I'm right. Okay? But that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. As in the days of Noah, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. As in the days of Noah. We all know the story of Noah. There's a movie coming. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, that wasn't so terrible. They're just kind of going about their lives. Until the day Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them away. Who was taken away? Was it Noah or was it everybody else? Everybody else were the ones taken away, right? So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other left. Two women will be grinding in the mill, one will be taken, the other left. Who is the one that is taken? Was it Noah or everybody else? It's everybody else. The wicked, essentially, right? You got Noah, the righteous, and the wicked. The wicked are the ones taken. The righteous stay and are protected when God brings judgment to the earth. Okay? This verse, which is very commonly used 
to be a proof text for the rapture and movies about the rapture, one taken, one left, is clearly, I mean, it's, it's, it's just obvious. It's, you don't even need to be a Bible scholar. You just have to read it, right? Just as in the days of Noah, where people were doing their thing, and Noah entered the ark, and they were taken. So it will be when the Son of Man comes, one will be taken, one will be left. Very, very basic. So clearly that does not speak about a rapture of the righteous. Are we all with me on that one? Pretty, it's simple, right? Okay, the next ones is this. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. The last trumpet. Okay? We just read about the seven trumpets of Revelation. One, hail and fire. Two, fire thrown into the sea. Three, star fell from heaven. At the last trumpet, it says, we will be raised imperishable and be changed. So even if you still want to hold to a rapture, it's going to happen at the last trumpet. That is clearly post-tribulation. If first trumpet is hail and fire, the second one is fire in the sea, the third is a star fell from heaven, the fourth is the sun moved and the stars were struck, a third of them, fifth, bottomless pit opened, right? So the seventh trumpet is after, okay? So anybody who is a pre-trib rapture, that cannot be. Because it's at the last trump. And the last trumpet is after all this stuff happens. Okay? What if you are a post-trib rapture guy? And this, okay, so now, okay, fine. At the last trumpet, we're going to be changed. What happens at the last trumpet? I read it, I paraphrased it, and I'll read it. This is what's going to happen at the last trumpet. Revelations 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded. Here comes the trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Messiah, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders worshipped. The kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God. That is what happens at the last trumpet. Okay? So, when Paul says, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the dead will be raised and we will be changed. Whatever that means, we know that the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our God. Okay? So we're not going anywhere. The world becomes his. Pretty basic, I think. Okay? First Thessalonians, this one's a little confusing. Okay? But I'll, I'll, I'll try to speculate on it. So 1 Thessalonians 4, 15-17, We say to you, the word of the Lord, we who are alive and remain until the coming will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord will descend from heaven with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet. So that would have to be the last trumpet. The dead and Messiah will rise first. Then we who are alive, and this is a, very, this is a rapture one, but we have to see how this is going to play out. Then who are alive and remain will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Okay? That is normally trans as we meet him in the, in the air and then off he goes. 
We know that's not the case because the kingdoms of this world. So this is him coming back to earth. That is what it specifically says. He's coming back. The world becomes his. He doesn't go out of the world. So he doesn't come, hang in the sky, we meet him, and then poof, we're gone. He comes to this world. So what does it mean that we meet him in the air, that we meet him in the clouds? I don't know. And I'm happy to say that I don't know. I know that in the book of Daniel it talks about the Son of Man coming in the clouds. So there is something about him coming in the clouds and we know he's going to come and, 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 and the dead is going to rise and we're going to meet him. One thing it says about meeting him in the air, right? We think of air as synonymous with sky, but it doesn't always mean that in scripture. If you want to look at the Greek word for air, it often just means in this, like in this atmosphere. Like this is the air also. It doesn't always have to mean sky. We think of it as sky, like airplane. But air doesn't always have to mean sky. But it does say we're going to meet him in the clouds. And maybe that means cloud of witnesses. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Or maybe we're going to kind of go and we're going to come down with him. I don't know. Okay? But it is, it is clear that he comes, he comes to earth. Because at the last trumpet, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God. All these things speak about the trumpet. So, it is logical to believe that this will happen on the day of trumpets. There are seven trumpets. Perhaps it will happen one Rosh Hashanah, one day of trumpets, Visa trumpets, Yom Teruah, day of trumpets, maybe one per year for seven years. That's a, that's a viable theory. Okay? But clearly, to me, that is the fulfillment of the day of trumpets. Yes? But also, isn't at the end of Yom Kippur, isn't there considered yep. to be a last trumpet? Yep. That's a great point. So, in the cycle of God, oh, now the podcast sounds good again. In, in, the, in the cycle of God, we have a year, right? And in each year, we have holidays, Moedim. One, once every seven years, we have something called the Shemitah, okay? Which is a, a, a rest for the land, where the children of Israel, in the sixth year, they have to gather three years' worth of grain. And God said he's going to provide three years' worth of grain. So that'll last that year, the sixth year. It'll last the seventh year when they let the land rest. And it'll last the eighth year when they're starting to sow again. Three years, but it's a promise of God. It proves that the Torah is divine. No human writing laws would promise something like that, that they couldn't keep. It would, it would be ridiculous. No human can keep something like that. But here's God saying, if you do this, I will provide grain for three years. Every time the Shemitah, the sixth year, comes about. That every 50 years is the Jubilee. Right? So it's 7 times 7, again, very similar to the Shavuot, which is 50 days. Now we have a 50-year cycle called the Jubilee. Right? On the Jubilee, on the day of Yom Kippur, which is the day of atonement, the shofar is blown. It is possible that this last trumpet is that trumpet. It's possible. Yep. Which is the year of Jubilee which also makes sense, because that is a year of release. It's a year all slaves get free. All property goes back to original owner, who's Adonai. So it is very, very possible that that last trumpet is on Yom Kippur, on the year of Jubilee. And when will that be? Do you know the year? don't know. We don't know. We would have to know precisely the years, and there's theory about that. People could figure it out. Nobody has figured it out yet. I guess because nobody knows exactly the day of the day. <laughs> They are saying that one of the seven year cycles is supposed to be next 
There's theory based on September 11th, what happened, yep. and then exactly seven years after that, exactly to the to the day the economy collapsed, and the, yeah. it was the exact again, and the exact same day that the stock market collapsed after uh, 9/11, 2001, it was the exact same day it collapsed in 2008, right? So there's some theories that that could be the Schmidt year, the seven-year cycle, which means that the next one. Could be another seven-year cycle, perhaps the jubilee. So that's why a lot of prophetic eyes are on, like Rosh Hashanah time, 2015. Yep. And it also corresponds with the Red Moon 14. Yep. 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 Which we're hitting, by the way, next month. Yes. Yeah. We're about a month and a half away from the first Red Moon. Yeah. But that's for another time. Um. Okay. Uh, the, the thing about the rapture is that it's caused so many disappointments. You know, over the course of years. I mean, hundreds and probably thousands of years of people who figured it all out and said the rapture's going to happen now, and then it didn't happen, you know? And it's called, I think even the cult groups, like even like, I think like Jehovah's Witnesses or Seventh-day Adventists, I think, I think, based on what Rabbi Peter taught me, they came, they, they kind of found their foothold in the aftermath of these disappointments of people feeling that the rapture's going to be now. And there was something apparently in the 1800s they called the Great Disappointment. Where they um, they were waiting, some people waiting for the rapture. It didn't happen. They were very disappointed. And in comes a teacher like Ellen White, who has the new truth, and it kind of started Seventh Day Adventism. Okay, it's not going to happen, right? The, the the way I see tribulation in the scripture is that he doesn't take the people of God out of it. He protects the people in it. It happened with Noah. It happened in the Exodus where the children of God were in their, in their Goshen, you know, and just seeing these plagues happening in Egypt all around, they're like, whoa, you know, and they didn't have to do anything to be protected. It was just God keeping his promise. It happened with uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they went into the fire, and, and Nebuchadnezzar turned the fire seven times hotter. It sounds like the seven years of tribulation, and they were protected in the fire. They weren't removed from the fire. They were protected in the fire. So that's how I see tribulation happening when it comes to us. Okay, so anyway, that's how I believe trumpets is going to be uh, fulfilled. All it is in the Torah is just a blowing and blow the trumpet. It's almost like, okay, we've begun this season. That's all it is. That's all you do. And that's what I think is going to happen. It's just, it's God saying, we've just entered into this time. It's yet to happen. Okay? The next thing that happens in Scripture is the Day of Atonement. And we're getting close to the end here. Um, look back to Leviticus 23. Yeah, could be. Um, um, okay, 27, 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also on the tenth day of this seventh month shall be your day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. There shall be no work. On the same day, it's a day of atonement. Um, you shall do no work. You shall do no work. It's a Sabbath of solemn rest. From the ninth day in the evening, from evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. Okay. So, we have the first day of the seventh month is trumpets. The tenth day is atonement. That is the day for national Israel 
for their sins to be atoned for. This is a future event, and this is when, in the scripture, the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies and makes atonement for all of Israel. This is a future event. Okay, How this is going to play out, I don't know exactly. Okay, But Yeshua, who is within us, will enter into the Holy of Holies and will make atonement for the world. Uh, there are a lot of things that happen um, um, in Yom Kippur, if you look at Leviticus 16, you can read that. Um, it talks about all the different things that happen on Yom Kippur. The high priest goes into the Holy of Holies. He makes atonement for himself. He makes atonement for the tabernacle. And then there are these two goats, okay, that are drawn by Lot. Okay? And it's interesting, the Hebrew word for Lot is pur, right? So purim. You know, which is the same Hebrew word. So, um, so it's interesting. Yom Kippur, Kippur, k means like in Hebrew. So Kippurim is like a day like Purim. And even in the Yom Kippur story, you see uh, these two goats drawn by lots. You know, kind of randomly, almost. You know, with, with divine providence over it. So it's, it's how this works. I have no idea. Okay, one goat is killed, the other one, the sins are spoken over, and it's, 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 it's cast out into the wilderness, into this thing called Azazel. We don't know what that means. This is going to be fulfilled sometime. I, I looked in the New Testament, okay, where could I find something like this in the New Testament? I could not. Okay? I don't know how this whole thing is going to play out. I don't. I wish I could tell you. But all I could tell you is this. It's the day for Israel's atonement. And the high priest, who is Yeshua, will enter into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for, him, for, for Israel. That is the day that is coming. That's all I can say about it. Okay? Um, one interesting thing about Yeshua entering the Holy of Holies, um, in Hebrews 9, a little hint about this, which I think is, is kind of cool. Hebrews 9, now the book of Hebrews, in my opinion, is, is a book that speaks to the children of Israel about how Yeshua is the priest, that he is the one who is overseeing the tabernacle, and in my opinion, it was written to minister to the Jewish believers who experienced the destruction of the temple in 70 and were like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? And here's the writer comforting them, saying, no, 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 you don't get it. Yeshua is the mediator of a better covenant. And all these things are foreshadow of what he's doing and what he did. Okay? So that's what I believe is the whole purpose of the book of Hebrews. There, much of it, much of it talks about the tabernacles and the temple services and the, and the animals and all that type of thing. Um, so in Hebrews 9, it says, um, uh, the first covenant, Hebrews 9, 1, uh, indeed the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and earthly sanctuary. Uh, a tabernacle was prepared which is called the holy place. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the most holy place. Okay, so he makes this connection between the holy place and the most holy place. Right? So like the holy of holies, that's where the, the, uh, the priest goes in once a year. And then the outer court is, is the holy place. Um, it says later in that same chapter if I could find it. 
that Yeshua, it says he went into the holy place. Verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all. So I think it's a little hint that Yeshua has yet, because he knows what the difference is between the holy place and the most holy place, because he specifically calls that out earlier in that chapter. This is the holy place, and then you have the most holy place, which is the holy of holies. And it says later that Yeshua entered the holy place. So it's almost a hint that he has yet to enter the holy of holies, because that's a future event. Okay? So that's Yom Kippur. It's a day of atonement for national Israel. It says in Zechariah 12, they look upon him who they pierce and they mourn from him. I believe that that's connected to the day of atonement because that's a day of mourning and then ultimately will turn into a day of celebration. Um, it's interesting, as Val said, that on the year of Jubilee on the day of atonement, it's actually, it's actually more celebratory. You blow the trumpet, you, you declare liberty throughout the land. Okay? So that is going to be fulfilled. Um, all the details, I wish I could tell you. Okay? Wish I could tell you. So you came all the way this way just to hear me say, I don't know. Um, the last holiday is on the 15th of the month. And in Leviticus 23, you can read about it. And we know it pretty well in these, them, their parts. Verse 34, on the 15th day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles. You shall celebrate it for seven days. On the first day, there's a holy convocation. Uh, seven days, you shall, uh, you know, um, have an offering. And you shall live in, let me see where it says that. On the 15th day of the seventh month, uh, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day, there will be a Sabbath rest. On the eighth day, there will be a Sabbath rest. You shall make for yourselves uh, fruit of beautiful trees, branches, boughs of leafy trees, willows of the brook. You shall rejoice before the Lord for seven days. Um, you shall dwell in booths, sukkahs, for seven days. Okay? So for seven days, you have the Feast of Tabernacles. It starts on the 15th of the month and goes also to the 21st, and then the 22nd is the 8th day, where there's also a day of rest, um, and that is Tabernacles. Okay? It, as easy it was, it was for me to look in all of the New Testament for the word trumpet, it's not as easy to do when you search the word Tabernacle. The reason being, is a tabernacle can mean multiple things. Hebrew, it's a lot easier because you have multiple types of tabernacle. When you ever see the English word tabernacle? It can mean multiple things. You can have Mishkan, which we all know, which is a tabernacle in the wilderness. This is where um, you know where God had His mercy seat, and it's where the holy of holies was. It's 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 the tabernacle in the wilderness, right? So that's the Mishkan. Translated as tabernacle, right? You have a sukkah, which is the feast of tabernacles, also translated as tabernacle, okay? And also you have ohel, which is translated tent normally, but it's also a tabernacle. Okay, so all these things, you know, if, if you want to search in Hebrew, you can find these things, and they're, they're, they're connected, but they're different. 
The Mishkan is that one that's in the wilderness um, that was the precursor to the temple. The Sukkah are these temporary dwelling places that the children of Israel dwelt in when they were living in the wilderness. Little portable tents. Okay? The Feast of Tabernacles is that. It's the, it's the Feast of Sukkot. Right? It's not the Feast of the Mishkan. It's not the Feast of Tents or Hell. It's the Feast of Sukkot. Okay? That is what is, is being celebrated here. So if I go into the Greek, and I, or I go into the Greek or the English in the New Testament, and say, show me tabernacle, it doesn't make a distinction between these. The word, it, it could be the same, it's the same word, whether it's talking about the tabernacle in the wilderness, or it's talking about the tabernacles like the Sukkot. So you can't really use, just search into the New Testament to find out, um, you know, okay, where does it talk about tabernacles? But there is one verse in, um, in Revelation. Revelation 21, verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them. They shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. That is the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay? And there are some uh, interesting connections between Revelation at the end and the wilderness experience where they were, where they lived in, in Sukkot, in tabernacles, which is what this holiday commemorates historically. Um, in, in the wilderness, there was the cloud by day and the cloud by day and the fire by night. In this time in Revelation, when it's the tabernacle of God is among men, in Revelation 21, not only is there no temple, there's no Mishkan, but it says the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord has illuminated, illuminated it, and its lamp is the lamp. So you don't need the fire by day, the fire by night, and the cloud by day. The lamb is, is, the, is the light. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory to it. Um, in the daytime, for there will be no night, the gates will be never closed. They will, and they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination or lying shall ever come into it. But only those who are, uh, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So, um, so that is the fulfillment of tabernacles. This is when Yeshua is dwelling with us at the end. So he comes and he's dwelling with us. It's interesting that it talks about the Feast of Tabernacles when who is the tabernacle these days? The tabernacle has been replaced with us. We are the tabernacle. In fact, when we read about, and this is now the Mishkan I'm talking about, when we read about that, all these little ins and outs of how this thing was created, you know, it all speaks about us. But it was all temporary. It all foreshadows us. We are the tabernacles. That's not just parable, right? It says, Paul says, you are the temple of God. It's, it's direct that we are the modern-day tabernacles. It is direct. And now we have a feast of tabernacles. So, I, so it's, it speaks to me about how the glory of the Lord will fill all the earth. It's, 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 it's a representation and it's, it's a fulfillment of how he is within us and we fill the earth. Because it's a feast of tabernacles and we're the tabernacles. So how does he fulfill it? He fulfills it again within us at the end. When his glory will fill the entire earth through us.
and thus he will fulfill the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay? So that is all of the holidays.